The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shochet will now present his lecture, Prozac for the Soul. There was a woman who was dealing with a whole range of issues that were really, really stressing her out. And she had a perpetual migraine headache on the back of all of this stress, such that she went to her doctor and he wrote her a prescription for Prozac and sent her on her way. It didn't help. So after a while, she went to her rabbi and spent the better part of four hours offloading on him. You see, doctors have patients, but rabbis have patients. And the rabbi, the rabbi listened, and he listened, and he listened. And finally, after all of that time, she looked to the rabbi and she said, wow, you're not just a scholar, you are a miracle worker. And the rabbi looked at her inquisitively and she explained, I came here with so much angst and I had an incurable headache. Now, not only have you listened to all of my problems, but my headache is gone. It's completely disappeared. To which the rabbi replied, my dear, it hasn't disappeared. It merely transferred from you over to me. <laughs> It's not just we, as Jews, but the world in general also realizes that the human being consists of two elements. We have a body and we have a soul. Although society might in fact use a different word to soul, but still there are these two different elements. There is the physical and there is, if you will, the mental, the spiritual. Now in philosophy, the dichotomy of the human being consisting of two separate components, both physical and spiritual or mental, presents a very complex problem. In philosophy, it's called the mind-body problem. You see, what is the mind-body problem? The body is something physical, right? That's a given. The mind, it's not something physical at all. It may function through a physical organ known as the brain, but the mind in and of itself, it's not physical, it's something spiritual, it's mental. Now obviously, the physical and the mental are mutually exclusive. And as such, the physical invariably leaves an impact on that which is physical, whilst the mental leaves an impact on that which is mental. And thus it makes no sense whatsoever to say that the body should affect the mind, or that the mind should affect the body. For two things to affect one another, there has to be a common denominator between them, some intermediary that actually connects them. But the hard fact is that the mind and the body have absolutely no connection whatsoever. Agreed? The mind and the body have no actual connection whatsoever, but what we do know is, ultimately, they do affect one another. That's why you said no. In actual fact, when you take, for argument's sake, Prozac, something physical, it calms the mind. When you drink alcohol, something physical, it affects the mind. When you take drugs, something physical, it affects your mind. 
How does it make sense that these physical entities can affect your mind, your mental state? They are mutually exclusive. Conversely, in medicine, there is a well-known phenomenon known as psychosemantic symptoms. That's where people can actually imagine something in their minds, and thus it's purely mental, and yet that can impact on them physically. You can actually talk yourself, God forbid, into illness. Or to the flip side, you can sometimes see the power of the mind cause an illness to go into some kind of remission. Sometimes the strength of the mind can have a compelling curative effect. Neither of these two ideas make sense whatsoever. When I asked you if you agreed, you all said no, because reality tells us otherwise. But the hard fact still remains. There is my physical self, and there is my mental self. There is my body, and there is my mind. They are mutually exclusive. That is fact. So how is it that my body can actually affect my mind, and how is it that my mind can actually affect my body, especially when there's no real connection between them? How can the physical elements, drugs, alcohol, etc., impact my mind, thus enabling me to see things differently, and vice versa? To be honest, that is a perennial philosophical paradox for questions which really have no answer. All we know is these are the facts. That's reality as we all relate to it. So all the philosophers can never really speak about what it is. All they ever really refer to is the, the, the mind-body interaction. That's all they can talk about. We simply know that they interact with one another but they genuinely do not understand on a rational level how. And in facing this reality, especially nowadays, we hear a lot about stress. Let's talk about stress. Stress, of course, is a purely mental, it's a mind condition. It's not physical at all. And yet stress is something which we all know clearly affects the body. There are actual physiological changes that occur in the body as a direct result of stress. When we hear of a person, God forbid, having a heart attack, or we hear of a person having ulcers, etc., one of the first things the doctor is going to be looking for in terms of causes is, was this brought on by stresses in your life? Stress decreases and breaks down the immune system. Stress can affect the lymph nodes. Various researchers have demonstrated that women who suffer from heavy stress and despair are more likely to get various different kinds of cancers, Hasvashalom. So in the sphere of medicine, we have to obviously look for ways to manage and to cope with stress. And therefore, we have all kinds of curatives. We have Prozac and whatever else besides. Research also discovered that very often, if not most of the time, it's not the stress itself that causes the physiological changes or the problems within the individual. The real source, the real cause, is the perception of the stress. And that's important to think about. The perception, the interpretation of how a person reacts to any given situation. It's not what we call stress, it's what we call the stressor, that which causes the stress.
And that's infinitely more critical than the actual cause and the external cause that brings a person to stress. So it follows in sequence. There's the stressor, by definition, that which I perceive, my interpretation of a particular situation, my concerns and whatever else, which in turn generates the stress, which in turn then impacts my physical body. Now I have to stress here, and it's very important to stress here, I need to state some categorical qualification. I'm not saying that anyone who confronts stress is, God forbid, going to get ill. Nor does it mean that people who are always happy and have no stress will always be well. There are no guarantees either way. Furthermore, sometimes the psychosomantic instances are caused by chemical imbalances, and if there are chemical imbalance, then you have to set that balance straight, usually with medication. So it's not a simple, straightforward situation, and that's not what we're addressing here. The major point, as I said, is that it's not so much the cause of the stress per se as much as the perception, and that's where our topic comes in. Prozac for the soul. Prozac for the soul, that is basically essentially what Torah in general and Hasidut in particular is really all about. You see, the problem with tranquilizers or something like Prozac is that you're bringing something from outside yourself and you're putting it into your body, which then will have the necessary physiological impact. It'll bring you peace of mind. And again, to be sure, sometimes you have to resort to this because there is no other immediate alternative. But by and large, it is effectively an artificial cure. It wears off and you have to take another one and so forth. If perception plays some weight at all, and perception is always something of my own, the way I perceive something, it's something within me, then as much as I can obviously take external drugs or whatnot, I should also strive to dig deep and find something of a cure within, to deal with my perceptions, to deal with the stressors, such that that will then impact on the stress, and then on my own physical self. Again, medication is something artificial from outside. It's not really the cure, rather it's something that forces the cure, if you will, upon you, without you being proactive in contributing something to it. You take the pill from the jar, you pop it, that's it. The ideal, of course, would be not to have to resort to that. The ideal would be to, to find the cure within. And again, it has to be stated in many instances, and I want to repeat this, there are qualifications, there are medical exceptions. But generally speaking, Hasidut and Hasidism is very much about perception. How we perceive ourselves, how we perceive other people, how we perceive the world around us, how we perceive life to give us perspective on life and reality. So let's start with an interesting, profound, fundamental teaching of Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, also taught later on by his disciple, his successor, the Maggid of Mizrich. And he says the following, in Tehillim in Psalms, there is a very famous passage which says, Haboteach Bahashem, he who trusts in God Chesed Yisavavenu shall be encompassed, will be surrounded by love, by kindness, by goodness, by divine grace. So the Baal Shem Tov asks, what exactly does that mean? Listen carefully because this is one of his most basic and fundamental teachings. He says, quite famously, Bamakam Machshavtai Shaladam Shamhu. 
there where your mind is at, where your thoughts are at, that is where you ultimately are. In simple terms, the mental impacts the physical, or more precisely, your state of mind impacts your reality. There's a statement also in various other Kabbalistic works, not least the Zohar. The human being is the mind and the mind is the being. The man and his thoughts are identical. You are what you think and what you think, that is what you are. And therefore, wherever your mind is, wherever your thoughts take you, that is where you are. Wherever you place your thoughts in your minds, that's where you take yourself. And thus says the Baal Shem Tov, if someone trusts in God, he thinks to himself, well, hey, if God exists, God is real, God is the creator, God is the provider, God is the sustainer, everything in this world comes from God, and God cares about his creations. When you absorb and you internalize this very idea and such thoughts, as per the rest of the verse, what happens? Chesed Yisav Avenu, you'll be surrounded, you'll be encompassed by divine grace, divine love, divine kindness. If you put your faith in God, God puts his faith in you. If you believe that God got you to it, then you will also know and believe that God will get you through it. And then that's exactly how it can happen for you. So much so, get this, says the Baal Shem Tov, that things that may have not been in the cards written to actually happen to you will still come about and come to pass simply because you thought in positive ways. It's a compelling idea. He's essentially saying what we said before about how the human mind can bring about a change in the dynamic of the physical human being. Because you're tackling it from within. You link yourself with your divine source up above. Only here's the kicker, because if it works like that in the positive, then of course it can work like that in the negative as well. And the Baal Shem Tov doesn't mince his words, and he actually, again, it's not his ideas. He's taking it from the verse in Psalms and explaining exactly what King David meant. And thus he brings a further verse from Isaiah, which says, that which they are afraid of, I shall bring upon them. If a person spends a lifetime thinking negatively, Oy vey, oy vey, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, etc. Then, then guess what? Then these negative thoughts can also impact your reality and have some kind of unfortunate or devastating effect. Those things that you are afraid of, that again is your perception because you may have no otherwise reason to be fearful of it other than your perception, then runs the risk of becoming your reality. They were not meant to happen. They're not in the program. But the fact that you put your mind to that, you can create a certain kind, a certain sort of negative aura around you that can cause things, God forbid, to go awry, to go amiss. It works both ways. I mean, let's face it. There are people who wake up in the morning and they say, good morning, God. Then there are other people who wake up in the morning and they say, oh, good God, morning. Good morning, God, that's a positive mindset. They're going to likely have a great day. Good God, morning, that day is probably not going to pan out so well. We impact our reality, we create our own destiny. You know that there is a concept 
of what we call the negative bias. Psychology suggests, a school of thought in psychology suggests that all things being equal, we have a disposition, we have a tendency to somewhat be that little bit more negative. And when you're in that state of mind, if you take 12 seconds, just 12 seconds to pause, to breathe, to reflect, to try and be more positive, it'll recalibrate your mindset and channel you back in the right direction. It's an interesting theory. You know, we Jews, we, we do that very, very well because we wake up first thing in the morning and what do we do? Twelve words, twelve seconds. Say that, think about it, thank God, I'm up, I'm awake, I'm ready to head into the day. Those twelve seconds recalibrate you and you're good to go. Hasidism has a very famous principle and we may well be familiar with it. The catchphrase, tracht gut wird sein gut. Think good, if you think positive, things will be positive. And here's the beauty of it. Unlike Prozac, you don't have to carry it. Unlike Prozac, you don't need a prescription from your doctor for it. Unlike Prozac, you don't have to pay for it. And perhaps, above all else, unlike Prozac, which is a chemical composite, so it invariably has side effects because ultimately you are taking a foreign substance and putting it into your body, and you can't expect your body to cooperate completely, but your bateach b'Hashem, your trust in God, your tracht good, that has no side effects whatsoever. You know, one of the earliest examples of this happened to one of the most greatest men that ever lived. And this might surprise you, but here's a little insight into a story that we're all familiar with. What is the first crisis that Moses confronts when he steps out onto the universal scene? We know the story. He's living, he's raised in Pharaoh's palace. The Torah introduces us to him. I mean, there will have been a lot of things that happened throughout his childhood that we don't know, but we're introduced to him for the first time when he steps out of the palace and he encounters an Egyptian beating up on a Jew. And of course, he takes action into his own hands. He has the confidence and the conviction to do what he knows is right. And he kills the Egyptian. The very next day, he heads out once more, and what does he encounter? Two Jews beating up on one another. And Moshe confronts them, and he says, Wicked one, why are you raising your hand to the other? And one of them turns around, the one who was accused of being a wicked one, and says, What are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And the terrorist says immediately that Moshe became very afraid. And he said, Oh, now the matter is no. And then in the very next verse, we're told that Moshe is on the run. And we know why he's on the run, ultimately, because this Jew went and ratted him out to Pharaoh and so on and so forth. But the Rebbe makes a compelling point and says the very deliberate reason why the Torah juxtaposes these two ideas, these two verses, Moshe became very afraid and then the next verse that he's on the run is that it's precisely because of his fear. It wasn't just a basic fear. It was very afraid. Precisely because of his perception, because of his fear, because of that adverse mindset, the negative thinking, that is what engendered the negative consequence of him then therefore having to go on the run. I don't know how it would have worked out otherwise. But what the Rebbe is saying is that if Moshe wouldn't have panicked, 
If he would have maintained the same conviction as he did the day before when he dared to kill the Egyptian in the first instance, that it will be good, notwithstanding whatever witnesses and whatever the pending threats, then it would have panned out altogether different. The perception of stress is more important, and that is which that is what regenerates the effects of the stress, not the stress itself. Positive thinking restores power to the individual. It says, you are in control of your action. No circumstance outside of us, no drive within us can deprive us of our sovereign power to determine how to think. And that, in turn, can always influence the outcome. Okay, great concepts, nice words, but what's the secret? How can I condition myself to think more positively? to react more positively, to manage my stresses better. It's all fine and dandy to say, this is what you need to do, and if you do it, it'll all be good, and so on and so on. How do I get there? My mind isn't a tap that you can just switch on, hot, cold, and whatever else in between. There are, and there have to be, other preceding premises in order to generate this attitude of, trach good, wird sein good, think good, and it'll be good. Now, to be sure, there are obviously certain things that are always going to be predetermined, predestined, many things that are outlined from birth, written in the cards for us, if you will. But there are many more things that are open to potential. And you fill in those blanks with your thoughts, with your heart, with your feelings, and thereby create a situation completely of your own. You see, one of the key teachings of all this is the Hasidic emphasis and the concept of what we famously know as bashert or hashkacha pratis, divine providence. People generally, especially in Jewish philosophy, in medieval times, explain the notion of divine providence in that God knows generally what is happening to everyone, but God is not necessarily directly involved in every fine detail. He sets the program, if you will, for whatever needs to be put into place, but then thereafter, everything happens on the way that it does, you know, like an actuary. An actuary works for an insurance company. He sets the program for the company. He spells out the general expected lifespan of each person is such and such, and we anticipate certain things to happen, and on the basis of this, assessments are made that the company calculates costs, premiums, and what have you for the insurance of the individual. Or by way of another example, before you go away, for a long weekend. The government issues you a warning to be careful when you're going to be driving on the road. Because generally speaking, everybody drives within the speed limit. Some people even drive maybe below the speed limit, but unfortunately, there are always those who drive over the speed limit. So the government statisticians will tell you on this particular weekend, during this period of time, we expect however many cars to be on the road. We actually anticipate however many accidents to take place on the road with however many fatalities, even, God forbid. And when the weekend is over and you open up your newspaper, guess what? The government's right. How do they know? Are they prophets? I mean, they hit the nail on the head. The answer is you can, you can figure it out. You cannot stipulate where it's going to happen or precisely to whom it's going to happen, 
But the general idea of knowing human nature, knowing human practice, knowing human habits, knowing patterns that have continuously repeated themselves, they know that so many cars are expected on the road, and statistically, they know, based primarily from all that past information, that there's going to be so much traffic, so many mishaps, and, and so on and so forth, and that's how they arrive at their figures. And so it is as the medieval philosophers always maintained with regard to God as well. Same broader principle, knowing what's going to happen to people, to animals, yes, even to blades of grass. But the nitty-gritty, that's pretty much down to a roll of the dice. I select to be the guy who's going to speed. Comes along again the Balshemtov and turns this whole theory on its head. And he say, states that everything is divine providence and that God is aware and God is directly involved in every fine detail and every happenstance of your life. Every fine aspect of this universe from man to the inanimate is directly engaged and involved with the divine. You know, there's a plane en route from JFK to Heathrow in London when half an hour before landing, the pilot announces, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you that due to weather conditions, we're going to have to land in Manchester, a neighboring city instead. And there's a cosset on the plane. He quickly takes out his Tehillim and he starts to pray. And 10 minutes later, there's another announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to report weather patterns have altered and in actual fact we'll be landing in Heathrow after all. And as stewardess approaches the Chassid, she says, I'm not a believer, but I saw what you did there and I'm duly impressed. And the Chassid looks to her and says, I'm glad you are. I live in Manchester. <laughs> You can't necessarily beat the system. And divine providence, this has to be stressed because I know this is always on people's minds, divine providence does not negate free choice. What sets the human being apart from every other creature, greater than angels even in the heavens, and higher than everything else on earth, is the fact that we actually as humans have free choice. I can choose, I can determine my own actions. What I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it. So the question, of course, is, so where does my freedom of choice and the whole notion of divine providence come into hand, hand in hand? How do they reconcile? How do they work with each other? And the answer is, again, that my choices operate within a certain limited area, by definition. When you're going to leave this retreat, some of you may be driving back to your destination. And you can really, if you think about it, have probably 20 different routes you can take if you so want. There's a short route. And there's a long route. There's a scenic route. Every route you choose has its own advantages and has its own disadvantages. It's a question of what you want to do. So you may want to take that longer scenic route. And invariably, it's going to be nice. It's scenic. But on the other hand, there's going to be a price to pay. There's extra time, extra gasoline, etc. But that's your choice. Then again, you can choose to take the shortest way possible. That's exactly how things happen in your life as well. We're going from point A to point B. That's out of your hands. That's predetermined. You're going to wind up at point B regardless of what you do. But the route you take, the journey you travel, how to get from point A to point B, that God says, that's up to you. And each step you choose has its own built-in consequences, which you alone are responsible for. Says the Baal Shem Tov, therefore, everything is by divine providence. God is watching over every little detail that happens in our lives. 
And the point of this is simply this. When a human being realizes and genuinely integrates this idea into their own psyche, that God is watching over me. He is by definition tovomative. He's good. He's benevolent. He only has, like any parent, our best interests at heart. And that therefore I can rely on God. I can trust in God. Then I have a different perspective in life. God is watching over me. At this juncture, during this problem, in the face of this particular crisis, confronting this temptation, even if we wake up and your Pavlovian response is, good God morning, if you pause long enough to think, it's my perception. It's really not so bad. It's all an illusion. It's not necessarily that that's, this is what it is. God is with me. There is a bigger picture. Then you change your outlook. You have a completely different perception. You limit the stressor, and then by extension of the stress, and then, of course, by extension, that very real impact on your physical self. There is actually a fascinating concept from the 16th, 17th century written by a Kabbalistic tract called Reishis Chachma. And he makes and emphasizes the point that the most important thing, the most important thing in any human being's life is one thing and one thing only. Simcha, joy, happiness. A woman walked up to a wrinkled old man rocking frailly on a chair on his porch, but with a big smile on his face, looking so happy. And she said to him, I can't help but notice how happy you look. What's your secret for a long, happy life? And he raised his hand rather weakly with this gesture, and he says, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I also drink two bottles of whiskey a week. I eat fatty foods, and I never exercise. And she looks at him, she says, wow, that's amazing. Can I ask you, how old are you? He says, 26. <laughs> Why does the Reishis Chochmah say, why is happiness the essential ingredient for life? Because it means that you're at peace with yourself. And you cannot be at peace with yourself if things aren't going right in your life or if you're not doing things right. Because if you're not doing things right, then your conscience gets the better of you. And frankly, you can't then be truly happy. When you appreciate the intrinsic value of something, you're happy to do it. You enjoy doing it. You cannot wait to do it. What is it they say famously, if you love your job, you'll never have to work a day in your life? Simcha is the test. Joy is the test of how sincere you really are, not just with God, but also with your fellow human beings. The way we relate to other people, the way we relate to our jobs, whether it is with joy and with happiness, whether we are at peace with ourselves. When you know that what you're doing is the right thing to be doing, when you know that I'm doing that which makes me, me. But how does a person get to that state? How do you get that internal Prozac that will really make you happy? Says the Reishis Chochma, it could only come from one place that precedes that. And that is Bitochen. Again, having full faith and trust in God. If you have full faith and trust in God, then what are you worried about? Why are you stressed out? The first of all of the Ten Commandments, which essentially is the first of all the mitzvot of the Torah, 
I am the Lord your God who took you out from the land of Egypt. It's written very deliberately in the singular. It doesn't say, Anachi Hashem Elokechem, I am the Lord your God, plural. Hashem who took you out, plural, from Egypt. Anachi Hashem singular, I am your personal God. Who took you individually out. I didn't just take out a mass nation. I cared about every single one of you in Egypt, and I took every single one of you out as though an independent entity because I'm directly involved in the nitty-gritty of every single one of your lives. So what's your problem? He's here. He's got your back. You can't hope for better than that. Here's an amazing little story. When Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, passed away, it was on a Saturday night in Matzai Shabbos, and the reading of the portion of Shemaz, the 24th of Teves, in a small village when he was fleeing Napoleon. And there was no one in his room at the time of his passing, except for his grandson, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, later to become the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, otherwise known as the Tzemach Tzedek. His mother died when he was a young child, and so his grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, was the one who raised him. And standing now alone, in the room with his grandfather lying nearby, knowing as he did that his grandfather would soon be returning his soul to his maker, he's brokenhearted. And he proceeds to do Mariv, the evening service, but he's doing it in a very sad and melancholy tone, singing to himself in a kind of really sad tune, expressing his emotions and his feelings of the moment. And the Alter Rebbe noticed this, and waited till he finished davening, till he finished praying. At which point he summoned the strength to call him over and to admonish him. Why did you pray in such a sad way? And then he proceeded to share with him a teaching. He tells him that in Tanakh, in the scriptures, there is a story well known about the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, who saw famously the divine chariots in the heavens, as described in great detail in the first chapter of Ezekiel. And it was, as he relays it, it was a mind-blowing experience with everything that he saw, and it was so disconnected from any kind of human terminology for divine things, etc. But in one of his descriptions, said the Alter Rebbe, he says, I saw the heavenly throne... And on this heavenly throne, I saw like the image of a human being sitting upon it. What's that supposed to mean? Said the Alter Rebbe, my teacher, the Magad of Mizrich, interpreted this as follows. On this heavenly throne, I saw the image of a human being. Like the image of a human being, so it will be upon him from the heavenly throne. In other words, there's a heavenly throne up above and there's a human being down below. On this heavenly throne, I saw the image of a human being. In other words, we impact one another. The human being and his own position and his own status and his own state of mind, what transpires down here below, that's how responses come from the divine throne up above. When we are happy, when you smile, guess what? You make God smile. And when God smiles at you, well, hey, believe me, it generates all kinds of wonderful reasons and blessings to keep you smiling. If, God forbid, you are sad down here, then you make, as it were, God sad as well. And when somebody is sad, he doesn't really feel like giving. He just feels sad. He just feels despondent. So whatever comes from above, concluded the Alter Rebbe, is in your hands. The way you show yourself, the way things that you perceive, 
That's how things will be shown to you. That's what will come from up above. Friends, that's the happiness recipe. It doesn't cost any money, but granted, it takes effort. Bitochen, trust, faith, recognizing the reality that things come from above, does require effort to work on that sort of theme. And then simcha, by extension, as a result, joy as well. And when you have that joy, you'll be shown joy. When you smile, you make God smile. And just as a practical tip, by way of another anecdote, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, had an older brother known as the Razab, Rabbi Zalman Aaron. He was a pious chassid, equally a successful businessman, and on one occasion, a deal went very bad, and he lost a fortune. Many fellow chassidim heard about this, and they immediately went to go and console him. Imagine their utter dismay when they found him sitting in the study hall immersed happily and contentedly in a Talmudic passage. How can you sit there so relaxed after such a devastating loss, after this happened to you? So he looks to them and he says to one, and what would you do if you were in my situation? So one chimed in and said, what do you mean? I, I would have a nervous breakdown. Another piped up and said, I would have cried my eyes out. Rosal looks to them and says, okay, fair enough. Now let me ask you a question. And in 10 years from now, how would you be feeling about it? Would you still be crying? Would you still be having a breakdown? First guy says, of course not. It's a bitter memory, but we'll have moved on. Said the saintly rabbi, exactly. I'm like you, just a little faster. I've already simply fast-forwarded 10 years. You see, we all have issues. We all have concerns of sorts, against which we have also... So many good things and stuff to be grateful for. Yes, stuff happens. Life doesn't always go to plan. Let's just be sure. Life doesn't always go to your plan. But to worry, to feel depressed, that's never helped anyone and isn't going to do anything except arguably digging a deeper hole. It's not going to change your reality. And therefore, the tactic of looking to replace negative thoughts with positive ones is something that is essential. Life goes on. It's so easy to surrender. It's so easy to mope around in self-pity. Clearly, nothing is going to be solved with that. And as we said, that in turn can generate for things to, God forbid, get worse. So what's the point? Diversion of mind may not be easy at first. So, okay, people wallow in self-pity. They love to do so, not realizing that they're only harming themselves and, frankly, sometimes harming others around them as well, especially those closest to them. So you owe it to yourself and those affected by you. What can I do to get out of this rut? The past is the past. Now it's time to move forward for the future. That is a perception that is entirely within your hands. It's what we make of it. I know it's high ground, but every one of us can work on ourselves in order to be able to get there. And then there's another and final point to consider in this regard as well. In my childhood bedroom in Toronto, there still hangs a poster. It depicts an image of a little boy resting on his hands with a grumpy face and has a caption beneath, I know I'm a somebody because God don't make no junk. And that, friends, is the single most important lesson of all. Everything I said until now can be summarized in that poster. I know I'm a somebody because God don't make no junk. What does that mean? Well, all of the great teachers of Hasidus tell us the tactic of the evil inclination is never to come to you and tell you, don't do a mitzvah, because you have a soul that will intuitively and instinctively reject that. 
It's never to come to you and say to you, go do this sin. Because your neshama is going to reject that as well. What does the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, come and tell you? The exact opposite of the poster. He'll tell you, you're a nobody. In actual fact, you are junk. You're garbage. You're worthless. Who are you to open a siddur to pray after you've done X, Y, and Z? How dare you show your face and show after you will have sinned? What are you doing? You have no business being around there on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You're worthless. Your mitzvot are worthless. Everything you do is meaningless. And that ultimately is the prime cause of all kinds of depression that we start feeling internally. In modern language, we call it low self-esteem. What I do doesn't matter. I'm not worth anything. What can I possibly achieve? Logically, rationally, let's consider the absurdity of the argument. If someone, God forbid, has a heart condition, and one of his lungs has stopped functioning, his stomach is weak, and his liver he lost a long time ago at too many forbringers at his kabat house. And one of his kidneys isn't functioning, but guess what? There's certain things he can still do. He's three quarters gone, the vital organs are half gone, but you know what? He loves skiing. So he decides he's going to go skiing. And he goes skiing, and guess what? Sadly, he fell, and he breaks his leg. What's he now thinking to himself? Should I even bother going to the doctor, get a splint to fix my leg? I mean, why should I? What's the point? I'm already three-quarters gone. I have to pay money to the doctor. The splint's going to cost money. The leg is going to be in a splint. I'm going to have to go on crutches. I'm, frankly, three-quarters gone already. What's the point? So I might as well leave the leg alone. That's one way you can go about it. But we all understand and appreciate the absurdity of that. How is that going to leave the guy feeling? Obviously, even greater despair than before. An alternative is, okay, maybe you're three quarters gone, but a quarter of you, you still have. So try to keep that quarter as strong and powerful as possible. By all means, go out there, fix your leg. You think you're three quarters gone spiritually? You have this one minute of putting on tefillin. You have this half a minute to go ahead and light Shabbat candles. You have this half a second of doing whichever sort of mitzvah. You're putting the splint on your leg. The evil inclination, the Yetzirah, comes along and says, give up, you're nobody, you're worthless. It's all a waste of time. If you believe him, if you buy into what he's saying, then that'll generate all kinds of sadness and depression. Sure, you can reach for the physical Prozac that will give you that uplift for as long as you take it. And then, of course, it wears off and you've got to take the next one and the next one, etc. But you... You haven't changed one iota. You haven't changed yourself, who you are. Then that's where Prozac for the soul comes in. You know, three times daily, we say in our prayer service at the end of the Amidah, and when you pray later today or tonight or tomorrow, reflect on those words. It's in the very last paragraph, just before we step back, Asa Shalom. Curious words. We say, let my soul be like earth to everyone. What's the meaning of that? Well, you know, we step on earth all the time. We walk on it. We jump on it. We kick it. We hoe it. We plow it. And would you believe it? The earth doesn't go into therapy. It doesn't take Prozac. It doesn't lose its self-esteem. Why not? Because its existence requires no external validation. Its value, it's innate, and it's intrinsic. Stepping on it doesn't make it any weaker or smaller. And that's what we are asking from God. Vinafshi, let my soul be like the earth. Give me the strength 
and the conviction to embrace that same attitude, to fend off the evil inclination and all those things that look to deliberately drag me down such that I will then not be able to function in the way that I can and that I should and embrace life the way that I can and that I should. And in so doing then, as per the way the passage continues, that'll open up my heart with true joy and gladness to put on the splint, to be able to study Torah, to do mitzvot, to live my life as a happy Jew. Remember, you are a somebody because God don't make no junk. Regardless who you are, regardless what you are, you are an extension of the divine. So maintain the faith, think positive, see yourself positively, be happy, stay happy. There was a chassid from Kharkov, a famous Hasidic city in the Ukraine, who traveled a great distance to be able to meet with his teacher, the Rebbe Rashab that we mentioned before. And the Rebbe greeted him, and the Rebbe said to him, Vos herzich in Kharkov. So how are things in Kharkov? He says, things are wonderful, said the Hasid. The Jewish community, it's thriving. Everyone gets along. The schools are full of people, are happy, generous. The shoals are busy. Things are great. The Rebbe is overjoyed to hear this report, took out a golden ruble, gave it to the man, and expressed his delight and his happiness at the report. Later that same day, another chassid from Kharkov managed to come and have a meeting with the Rebbe. The Rebbe greeted him and asked him, Was herzlich in Kharkov? What's doing in Kharkov? He says, oh, things are terrible in Kharkov. Everyone is fighting. The schools are mediocre. People are self-centered. The shoals are uninspiring. Torah study is dead. The Rebbe thanked him for the report, didn't give him a gold ruble. That evening, the two Hasidim happened to meet up, sitting together at a Fabrengen. And the first one talks about his own encounter that morning, and I came to the Rebbe, and he asked me how are things in Kharkov, and I told him that, and he gave me a gold ruble. And the second class is like, what? You've got to be kidding. He leaves, he goes immediately to the Rebbe, and he says to him, how come he got a gold ruble for his report, and frankly, he sold you a bill of goods. I gave you the truth of what's going on in Kharkov. How come you didn't give me a gold ruble? And the Rebbe looked at him with a sparkle in his eye. And he said, Dumainst, you think that I don't know what's going on in Kharkov? I know very well what's going on in Kharkov. I just wanted to know which Kharkov do you live in? You need to sometimes pause, check yourself, ask yourself that same important question at different junctures in life. There are always two Kharkovs in our lives, a choice point that we encounter on a regular basis. Doesn't matter where you've been up to before. Which Kharkov are you living in right now? Where's your mind at? And finally, the Medrash relates that during creation, when the trees observed iron, as it is one of the elements of the earth, they began to shudder. After all, they realized that the metal of the axe, the iron of the axe, has the very real ability to cut them down. So they stress over the awareness of the metal, of the iron. Continues the Medrash, the iron retorts, why are you trembling? So long as you don't provide the wood for the axe's handle, you'll always remain safe from harm. In other words, the iron is telling the trees, I am incapable of destroying you without your assistance. If the trees themselves are going to not contribute the wood for the axe handle, then the iron's efforts to destroy them are going to be futile. 
Nothing can cut you down in life if you don't allow for it to happen. You are, as we said, in control of your own destiny. Your frame of mind, your attitude, your disposition, that is all within your power. That's your internal Prozac. Only you can decide your moods, your sense of self-worth. It all depends on which Kharkov you live in. It all depends on digging deep, the betochen, the trust, which generates the simcha. Friends, the point of this lecture, the title of this lecture, Prozac for the Soul. Always remember this final anecdote. In Russia of old, when they introduced trains, people were delighted because it's a way to get somewhere quicker than a horse and buggy. The only problem is it costs a lot of money. So a lot of Jews had a simple scam. They used to go on the trains, and they used to sit there riding for free. And if the conductor suddenly came looking for the tickets, one would yell out, the Malachamovas kumt. The angel of death is coming. And they'd all go and quickly hide under the seats, etc. And they wouldn't get caught. And so it went. One particular occasion, the conductor gets on the train. Everybody goes under the seats. Conductor comes on. sees Suddenly there's, he sees a shoe, a boot sticking out. So he pulls the boot. And lo and behold, there's a leg attached to it. And then there's another leg. And there's a whole body. And he sees the man. And he says, get up. And the guy's trembling. And he gets up. He says, do you have a ticket? So he reaches carefully, hand trembling into his pocket. And he pulls out his ticket. So he looks at him and he says... I don't understand. If you have a ticket, why are you hiding under the seat? And he says, it's, it's really very simple. I mean, I was sitting here with my ticket, minding my own business, when all of a sudden you came on, somebody yelled out, the Malachamovas come, the angel of death is coming. Everybody else ran under their seat, so I went hiding under my seat too. And we all know how that ended. You, every one of us here, has a valid ticket. Never mind that all the other passengers in your life or around you or the negative forces scream, Malachamovas, and they hide and they run under their seats. You have a ticket. There's no reason for you to hide. You can sit comfortably in your seat and take that train, as we said before, from point A to point B. What is your ticket? The deep inner knowledge of knowing you are a somebody. And it is you, me, and all of us that pretty much determines for ourselves who we are, what we are, how things happen for us. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. How we look at things, how we perceive things. Two Kharkovs, two worlds. The world of illusion and the world of reality. And in that world of reality, God don't make no junk. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.